Hello friends, this is the AlphaList podcast. I am your host Toby. The goal of the AlphaList podcast is to empower CTOs with the info and insight they need to make the best decisions for their company. We do this by hosting top thought leaders and picking their brains for insights into technical leadership and tech trends. If you believe in the power of accumulated knowledge to accelerate growth, make sure to subscribe to this podcast. Plus, if you're an experienced CTO, you will love the discussion happening in our Slack space where over 600 CTOs are sharing insights or visit one of our events. Just go to alphalist.com to apply. Welcome to the AlphaList podcast. I am your host, Toby, and today with me is Tanasis, and Tanasis is the VP of Engineering at Trade Republic. Trade Republic is a trading app for stock trading uh, with like lots of gamification factors, um, as far as I know. And uh, yeah, uh, Tanasis, did I, did I forget anything in the introduction? Uh, maybe you want to say a few words. Yes. So, hello everybody. My name is Thanasis. I'm the VP of Engineering for Trade Republic. I don't think we have gamification in the app. I'm surprised to hear, to be honest. Uh, we're a savings platform, right? Not a trading platform. And we've actually taken many steps to avoid gamification over the next two years. And, uh, what happened with GameStop, right? Two years ago, a bit after I joined. Uh, okay okay yeah i mean uh what what you essentially what what i mean is that you make stock trading easy right you make it accessible for people um and that's like one one very important factors uh, if you if you know like the, the 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 platforms like 10 years ago it was horrible and now you actually have an app and you can buy stock in no time right yes so uh, the original proposition was called tap tap trade right which was actually simplifying this process that people already knew. Right? People who were experienced in the stock market, they could now, with a few taps on the mobile phone, get the stock that they want. Right? Um, this, of course, evolved a lot. Now we're talking more about democratizing access to wealth. Right? And this means we're uh, referring more to newbies to the financial markets, want to make it accessible to everybody, and of course, low cost and simplicity of use are important barriers to remove if you want to democratize access. Right? Um, but this tap tap trade, which, uh, as correctly pointed out, was the initial phase of the company, um, quickly had to be taken care of because when someone is new at the markets, simplifying trading might actually bring it closer to gambling for them, right? So we try to guide these users towards the right savings behavior. And that's why we're, we want to present ourselves as a savings platform, not just a trading platform. Okay. So you're a bit different from eToro and other players in the market, I guess. <laughs> Just to name a single one. <laughs> yes, uh, we don't see Toro. Yeah, you know what? We don't see those as competitors, right? I think our closest competitors are actually in the US. You think of like Charles Schwab or Fidelity or Vanguard, so big companies that uh, help people invest their 401k, their retirement funds, right? Uh, more than Etor or Robinhood or uh, apps that are about more social trading. Or, uh, or gamifying the idea of trading. Okay, okay. And what what is special about yourself? Before we talk more about Trade Republic, um, is that you've been you you have like a data career, and now you're VP Engineering. Um, and today, um, in the later discussion, I would, I'd like to focus on on data and and how like a modern data stack is designed or should be designed. Um, 
Maybe before we start there, um, you can tell me a bit more about your personal nerd journey. Uh, like, how did you start it, and when, and why? Yes. Um, and 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 what fascinates you? Yes. So I think I'm a bit older than you, Robin. It's uh, I invited person in the podcast. Right? Uh, I finished my PhD in machine learning back in 2009. Right. Um, so back then. Uh, We did not really separate data from engineering that much, right? There was one role that was called software engineer, and I just happened to have a specialization in machine learning. Um, first job out of uni, uh, was, uh, was a trading company. It was called Source Capital, and I spent four years there doing high frequency trading, right? So I would develop end-to-end systems that would go to the stock market and basically trade in order to make profit. Uh, that was my first, uh, time I did my fingers into financial data, right? My PhD was on audio and video back then. Uh, and from um, trading, I moved to Booking.com. So the first tech company I worked. So at Booking.com, I did ranking and pricing. Um, the va- vanilla model you think about, right? You come to Booking.com, you put Paris, try to find out what are the best hotels for you in Paris. Uh, that was a lot of fun. I said that for two years, and then I moved to the US. Who? Uh, for Uber, Airbnb, and Netflix, right? So big marquee names on the West Coast and some of the most successful startup stories uh, in the US. Um, I left California two years ago to move to Germany uh, for Trade Republic. And I'm happy to dive into all of these details, uh, but we spent a lot of time on the podcast in the past, and I think the future is more exciting than the past. Okay, okay. Uh, but what, what is what is fascinating, uh, like reading your, your CV, um, is that you worked a lot at, at in, in app businesses. Um, and, and I think like your knowledge about product analytics and, and, and then like data science in particular, uh, or like a deeper sense, uh, is, is really, really interesting. Um, so yeah, let's, let's talk about today. Um, maybe like a few words about trade Republic. Uh, like, I think you have like 1.3 billion in funding. Is that, is that correct? Uh, that's the total amount of money we've raised. That's correct. $1.3 billion in funding over four funding rounds at the moment. It, it's, it's crazy. I mean, what, what do you do with all that money? Is it customer acquisition then mostly? or? Uh, that's a good question. So f- firstly, we're a fully licensed bank. right? So a lot of this money is actually reserves and capital requirements we have to maintain. It's not like we can go and spend it all, right? Like the story. Uh, the second thing is, we have spent money expanding internationally, right? Uh, but the big part of the investment is actually on people, right? Uh, we try to attract top talent. We try to give them engaged. Uh, we've built a beautiful office in the middle of Berlin, right? Where we hope people can uh, be excited to spend more time together after two years working from home. Uh, so a lot of this investment goes back to people um, and all the auxiliaries of being a bank, right? Uh, we have to apply for licenses. Uh, we have uh, compliance and legal and all of these other requirements. We run audits, right? Uh, it's an expensive business running a bank. Uh, okay, okay, I can imagine. But I, I, I assume that customer acquisition is also a part of the a piece of the cake. Um, I, I, I imagine at least. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. Yes. Um, so uh, and to be more precise, so in 2021, like most companies, uh, we spend a lot of money in customer acquisition. It was a period of uh, very cheap and available capital. Uh, the name of the game was land grab, right? Try to grow as fast as possible, get as many users as you can. And so we also had high customer acquisition costs. In our line of business, we have a referral friend, which is actually a great um, viral mechanism. 
We also offer people a free stock when they join the platform, right? So most of the spend is happening on incentives rather than traditional marketing channels. Uh, I would say this year the tide has turned, right? Everybody's much more careful with the spend. Though we still offer some of these incentives to acquire new customers, our spend is much smaller. Uh, last but not least, uh, because we're part of the financial markets, we were very early noticing the change in this tide. Uh, so this year, for example, we raised an extension of the previous round, which was a protective mood, right? We didn't know when again uh, we'll have the opportunity to raise money, so we prefer to have a big war chest. And we're very well capitalized and we're ready for any recession coming ahead. Yeah, um, <clears throat> let's hope that it will be less bumpy than uh, than, than everyone thinks right now, right? Um, I'm optimistic myself. Uh, US might not go to a recession at all, actually. I think they're I just go buy it. Uh, for Europe, things are harder, right? Uh, but in Europe, recessions are usually mellow and long, right? It's not like this collapse that happens in the United States. So I think mm. we can weather it pretty well. Mm. 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 So from your company to you, um, why did you get into, into data at all? Like what, 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 what made you, uh, what, what sparked your interest, um, in, in algo trading initially? Um, and, and, and why did you get into that? Yeah. So, um, my bachelor's was in computer science, right? Uh, and, uh, I had the feeling and maybe I was proven more right than wrong that well, as a software engineer, you continuously change technologies, right? So back then I was doing C and C++ in my bachelor's. Very few people use it now, right? Uh, technologies change, languages change. Um, and I had the feeling that, um, when you move more towards to data, statistics, mathematics, you have kind of a more long-term uh, set of tools that you can use, right? And so that was my first uh, step go going towards data. Uh, the second step, of course, was charts, right? Most of us, when we make choices at the age of like 20, 22, 25, um, don't know everything. And based on a few observations, we try to make the best inference we can, right? Uh, in my case, my bachelor thesis was on energy consumption on the ARM processor. This old Ericsson phone with a little door, if you remember what I'm talking about. Um, and then the idea was how can we help software in a mobile phone to get better in order to have less energy consumption and longer battery life, right? And the only idea to improve software was some type of artificial intelligence. We used genetic programming back then. And so quickly I saw a family of algorithms that I believe they would have this long-term effect, right? So they can uh, exist for a while, much more they're less transient than programming language. That was the first decision to go more into data and eventually machine learning. And then from algo trading to booking is kind of also a crazy move, but uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, that, that's actually the least crazy move, right? Uh, when you leave a trading company, you have a non-compete. So you can't go to another trading company. Uh, so I thought, you know what, I'll go to booking.com and spend a couple of years, take it easy, you know, not as hard as high frequency trading and go back in the pit. Uh, but I think once you test, uh, taste the life of a startup and a technology company, it's hard to go back to traditional finance. I can imagine, yeah. Uh, and also selling a vacation is good karma, uh, much better karma, you know, than uh, trading. And, and, and now you have both under one umbrella and you're fully licensed bank and so on. Do you every once in a while still, still, still write trading algorithms secretly or? So to be honest, I have taken a look at our crypto data. I think that's where most opportunities appear because equities are pretty efficient as markets by now. It's hard to make money like with a quick algo. 
And I think crypto is about CZ, but yeah, I've, I've taken a couple of stops at the DS. Okay, okay. And um, I, I think all the, all, the, all the platforms, that's also because of markets being efficient, platforms that existed to actually do uh, backtesting and have e easy accessibility to, to the markets, they, they disappeared, right? Uh, so uh, because it was so hard to write an algo or? Well, I think for a few years, the market was moving up and to the right. So the dominant strategy was just buy and hold. Uh, as the internet of simulation. Uh, and I think um, another reason is it's not just that the markets are uh, harder to get to, but actually uh, the speed game really matters. Right? So if you think about equities now, people have moved into wireless communication and microwaves and all sorts of tricks to get like a few milliseconds faster. And you just cannot compete from your home with your home equipment anymore, these markets, right? Um, so I think all of this trend eventually died out. And it was never going to make it. But but um, buy and hold, I mean, yes, right now it looks maybe horrible if you had like a buy and hold portfolio and you started, um, I don't know, two years ago. Uh, but but, but in, in long term, it would still work, right? So, it, so yes, yes and no, right? Uh, buy and hold, <coughs> it's, a risk, it's, a, it's a risky strategy. <clears throat> what we recommend, and what actually always works, is continuously save. Right? So if you do buy the same amount of, let's say, S&P, MSCI, all these big ETFs on a monthly basis, um, in 10 years, you're going to be golden. And of course, there will be variance and volatility. There will be bad months and good months. But, you know, in the bad years, you get more of your index, right? Because the prices are lower. In the good years, you get less and you're more profitable. Um, so the idea is this continuous investment, right? Uh, once off, you might be buying in an unlucky moment. Right? This continuity that actually pays off in the long term. But, but the theory, from my perspective, I, I mean, I also like partly trade every once in a while. Um, it, it, it only works at the very beginning, right? I mean, because the more you have, the, the less, uh, you'll, you'll add, um, if you, if you buy, buy additional stocks. So you must have like a logarithmic function uh, on investing more and more and more and more, um, so that it's, uh, yes, making no, sense, right? It, it, it works more in the beginning. So time in the market is more important than timing the market, right? Uh, so, of course, if you're going to invest money now that you will need the end of the year in March, it's very risky. But if you invest money now, you're going to need them in 2030. Don't worry about it. Right. And I think this is the idea. Timing the market is more important than timing the market. Uh, mm -hmm. So these short term investments are always carrying a lot of risk. Uh, we think about people who want to retire. Right. And they're going to be putting money in for 35 years. And then I don't think there is any specific point that to start or stop. Just keep doing it. And trust in the system. Yeah, that, that makes sense. But we're not a trading podcast. I mean, I could I could talk about trading for a while as well because I like it's it's a hobby. Uh, but 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 tech, um, and uh, I I'd, I'd like to understand a bit more like what really is your secret sauce as as Trade Republic. I mean, you're you're a fully licensed bank and so on, and you have many competitors. What what would you say makes your product very special? Yeah. So. Um... I think we have the advantages of a fully licensed bank, meaning we have very low costs of execution, right? Uh, we're pretty efficient and so on and so forth, while still having the advantage of a startup, right? 
we move fast. We have an app that looks uh, like it's 2022, not like it's like 1990 or something, right? Uh, and I think combining these two is increasingly difficult, and it's increasingly difficult at scale. Uh, there is a lot of banks out there with longer history than us and bigger balance sheets, right? The Deutsche Bank, but they can't build an app. There is a lot of other apps that offer you access to the market one way or the other or to derivatives usually, not in the market. And they either have very high costs, eventually they're unsustainable, right? Uh, or they um, are not regulated, right? And of course, it's hard to put your life savings in an unregulated platform. Mm-hmm. I think we combine the best of both worlds, and uh, this is not easy. We can talk about it if you're curious, uh, but I think this is our competitive advantage. Okay. Um, so, from like looking at your tech stack and and your your product in particular, like what is what is the fact you you you're most proud of? Um, it will sound uh, uh, easy. Uh, but we recently launched fractional trading, right? So we allow somebody to buy, let's say, 50 euros of Berkshire uh, Hathaway, right? So um, you can buy any amount of money you want from any stock that you want. There are stocks out there that might cost hundreds, thousands, even hundreds of thousands of euros that were inaccessible to the public before, but now you can actually buy a very small percentage, let's say 50 bucks or 100 bucks of this stock, be equal shareholder, right? So get dividends, get all the financial benefit, and hold just a little piece of this stock. So bringing this out to life, I think is a big step towards democratizing access to the markets. It's a big step towards making markets accessible to countries with low income, right? Where people do not have hundreds of euros to save every month. And it's also a difficult technological challenge, right? Implementing this correctly, not losing count, not losing money in the process and uh, pushing through all the legal and compliance hurdles to make this done. It was not simple. And I'm very proud that the team pulled it through. Okay, so is it then like buying real stock in the background? Like even if it's... Yeah. but you, We buy but, the whole stock ourselves and give you little pieces, you know? Really? Some, yeah, exactly. It's the actual real stock in the back. Okay, and, and if someone else comes and buys the other half, then uh, you, you... Wow. We have half each. Yes, correct. Well, that, that means that you need a lot of money, obviously. <laughs> so, <laughs> At least... I can tell you, it costed us 2 million euros, right? So if you want to buy one stock of every stock, actually it costs 2 million euros. A few of them are very, very expensive, right? Um, and of course, for some penny stocks, people don't need to do fractional. If a stock costs three cents, you buy a lot of them. You don't buy half of them, right? Uh, but uh, it was not like a crazy amount of money. It was an investment worth making, right? It actually enabled a lot of people, especially in Southern Europe, to trade stocks that before were inaccessible to them. So... What was the first thing you did when you entered the company? Well, More than two years ago, right? Um, yeah. The first thing I did is uh, join a meeting of my team back then, Data. Uh, I tried to be a fly on the wall, right? Uh, try to say nothing, hear, learn, right? Uh, see how the team is uh, working, how the team is making decisions, right? And I can tell you I was very, very surprised. Uh, Positively surprised or...? <laughs> It's not positive or negative, it's just surprised, differently surprised. Right? <laughs> uh, in the past, I have worked in uh, the Netherlands, in uh, UK, in Switzerland, and in the US. Right? Uh, and when I was coming to Germany, I had this expectation that it would be like Holland. But actually, it's very different to Holland. Right? 
uh, I came in, there was a conversation around uh, how to structure tables for users and for uh, acquisition. And um, I think the direction the team was going was a direction that many people start with, but it's not the right long-term scalable solution. Right? Um, of course, as a leader, as a manager, you should not be solving problems for people. You should be teaching people how to solve problems. So in the future, they can solve them themselves, right? Uh, so I tried to intervene in the conversation and I asked, like, have you thought about XYZ? Which is actually the right solution, right? And the response was, no, we haven't thought about it. And they continue speaking out um, the idea they had. So <laughs> not thinking about an alternative was actually a fine part of the situation. And then I said, maybe we can think about this alternative. And they told me, look, you're the manager here. If you want to do it that way, just tell us. So people were not used to having this conversation. They were used to having this top-down decision-making where me as a manager, I pick a solution and I go out there and implement it. And getting the team out of this mindset, out of the mindset that our manager knows better, because normally they don't, right? Out of the mindset that we execute and the manager decides, it took me months, actually, of work, right, to explain to them that whatever you end up implementing is your choice. You build it and you own it. And if it breaks, you have to fix it. And if it doesn't work, you have to rebuild it, right? Uh, and giving the final ownership of the projects to the leaves of this tree, that's a company, takes a lot of time and uh, change the mindset of people at the leaves a lot. I've used the allegories, examples, stories, right? Took a lot of time to get them to understand that they decide. I'm just giving ideas. They can pick anything they want. And at the end of the day, they own it. Success or failure lives with them. And back then you started in the data team. Uh, was it was it problematic in the whole company, or it, would you say it's it's particularly a German thing? Yeah. So yeah. So I the, in uh, in the inference world there is a phenomenon called confounding. Right. So when many things happen at the same time, it's difficult uh, to figure out which of the factors affect the outcome. So it's the first time I was in Trade Republic. It was the first time I was in the data team of Trade Republic. It was the first time I was working in Germany. So it was very hard uh, to figure out what is the factor that affects it the most. Definitely all of them contribute, right? So I have hired people from other German companies who came with the same mindset, expected me or their manager to decide about the solution. So I think it's a cultural thing, right? But I would say in Trade Republic, being a bank, uh, we were particularly susceptible to it because we do have some authorities we cannot um, uh, go against. If compliance says something, if Buffin says something, if legal has an opinion, um, this is not Uber, where we're okay with breaking the law, right? We're a bank. We have to comply. We have to listen to people. We have to do as they tell us. And it's very hard to shift your mindset to the technology part of the company, where, you know, bottoms up usually works better than top down, right? Where people are empowered to make decisions. Uh, so I would say a lot of factors contributed, definitely cultural, uh, definitely the fact that we were a bank and we had a bank, right? Uh, but uh, also, I think a little bit the way things were traditionally done, right? Um, in a small startup, and when I came, the whole tech organization was less than 50 people, right? Uh, you are still founder-led. Like the founders have a vision and you implement it, right? And growing into find founder-inspired, where still Christian, Thomas, Marco have a vision and we just get inspired by it, implement the best we can, it's a, a slow process. But but you managed to turn the engineering organization around then fully, or? Yeah, so it took some time, I would say. Uh, I can tell you, I think one of the uh, 
breaking moment was. Uh, so a few months in, uh, things were working already much better, and we had a big project which was to redesign our data warehouse. Um, and when this project started, uh, I would already have much more scope, right? So I would not be closely involved. I would just see people's communication in public channels. And I would notice that there was lack of ownership and really poor communication across different people. And what happens in these cases is when people expect, uh, Tobias, you do this, and then I do that. And then I don't know, Mary comes and do something else. Uh, when people see the work as a factory line, where things come through the line and you put the bolts, I put the tires, and the car is ready. Right? When you start the project in technology, you don't know how this line looks like. Right? You have to figure it out. People have to get out of their comfort zone, find overlaps, communicate, and all the process end to end. And I could feel the project is going to fail just from the communication in these channels, just from what the way people would be speaking to each other. I did call an all-hands meeting, like emergency meeting. I saw them, something sort of slack I've seen. I said, this project will fail. I don't even know what's happening. And that's how this message should look like. I think this is when I really broke through to people that what I'm trying to explain to them is not something that happens when I'm in the room and everyone is empowered, but that should happen when... In every project, right? In every single communication, in every single room, with me or without me in it. And this creates a few, I would call them autostalls, right? So some of the other people that think that when they would be in the room, they would say, hey, this is not how we work here. Hey, we should be communicating. We should all the decisions. We should not be avoiding ownership, right? And this is really when the team broke through and we had actually a very successful data warehouse migration, also because I'm proud about in less than three months. Okay. Um, are you very data driven as a company? Uh, we are definitely data informed, right? Uh, I wouldn't go as far as data driven. Uh, and this is, uh, both because of the projects that we're building and also because we're a bit afraid of data drivenness, right? What do I mean by this? Um, a few of the projects that we're building actually were not allowed to give them to half of our users, right? Uh, if you create a financial product and I decide to A-B test it, right? The regulator will come and say, why do you discriminate against half the people who don't have access to this product? So it's harder to A-B test. Right? Um, on the other hand, uh, we have now A-B tests in everything that has to do with user experience, UI interface, and so on and so forth. So we're getting better at it. What we're really good at, though, is to be data informed. So we make sure we set KPIs, goals, and metrics, and know what we're optimizing for and try to solve problems, and just create solutions, right? Uh, we have a problem and define it before we go out there and solve it. Okay. Okay. Um, and, and, and what does that, what does that mean concretely? If you look at your, your stack and your, your, your application, I mean, you're, you're very app driven, right? So most likely you measure user activity and you, you, you measure, uh, you do, you do product analytics in the, in the classic, classical sense. Yes, exactly. So uh, how does your stack, how does your stack look like? Yes. So, uh, we, Let's start at the bottom of the pyramid, right? Uh, the data pyramid at the bottom, it has um, data storage, model, and availability. You need to store your data, model it, make it available, right? Uh, so we store our data in S3. Uh, we have a data warehouse in Snowflake. Uh, we use DBT for modeling and Airflow for orchestrating, right? So these are stack uh, at storage, model, and availability. Above these, of course, we have metrics and access to data, right? Uh, we use Looker. Uh, which is a tool great for both Explorer for visualization, right? We have dashboards, access, and metrics, and people can see how their work affects 
the main company metrics or the team's metrics. Right? On top of this, we talk about experimentation excellence. Once people get used to metrics, they want to know how can I make it better, right? And we have our in-house A-B testing solution that allows people to run experiments on mobile, backend, or web, right? So all of our interfaces and gives them directly 70 metrics automatically estimated for our users. Uh, <clears throat> last but not least on top, we have what we call data products, right? So we use HageMaker uh, to create machine learning models that power things like recommendations or our uh, ARPU prediction or our uh, targeting for marketing and so on and so forth. Okay. Um, <clears throat> that A-B testing layer is really like custom-made in-house. Yes. Yes. So there is three ways to do A-B testing, right? One is you use some type of external uh, tool, let's say Firebase. Uh, if you want to get metrics in the external tool, you have to send your metrics there, let's say user trades. Um, this is a nightmare for a bank. I can imagine. You don't want me to send your deposits and your trades to Google or Apple or anybody else, right? So this is out of the window. The next idea is either you get a tool that you can install on your own or premise or you build your own. Uh, building an A-B testing platform is not that complicated. Right? People did it on some kind of impossible tweak, but no, it's not actually. You have to have a service that randomizes assignment, right? So Tobias comes in and she controls treatment. Hanais comes in and she controls treatment, right? Then you have to have the right metric engine to calculate results on these two groups or three groups or four groups, right? And so although our A-B test problem is basic, it allows people to start, stop experiments and get results at least 90% of the way. But it, it is then like essentially an API, right? Uh, where, which you can use to, to start experiments. How, or can you like flexibly change the front end of the app uh, for such experiments? Or how does that, how does that work? Yes, yes. So it, it, it compromised from an SDK, right? So the API works great, but the problem is sometimes the, the A-B test is in a part of the app that's visited a lot then the API will be hit all the time, right? So you create an SDA that can do a bit of caching, right, locally, so the app doesn't get slow. Uh, so we have an SDK for web, for app, for back. Uh, then, of course, we have the service, which is exactly what is this API. And then, of course, we have an um, internal tool, which is an internal website where people can look at results, start a stop experiment with buttons, right, in order to enable a product manager to start their own experiments or stop them, right? Uh, or someone who is not very technical. You don't have to reach out to engineering to start or stop the experiment. And most importantly, if we roll out an experiment that has a problem, it's very easy to roll back, to give everybody the control experience and not expose our users to the problematic experience anymore. I mean, I've seen like many companies pretending to do A-B testing, but not not many of them like doing it efficiently. Uh, that's why I like the topic. Um, would you like... If, if you would start again or if you would just have like a, a simple app, which is not like trading uh, where, where, where data is not so important, what, what should, would you recommend to, to get started with? Like if you, if you want to wanna do A-B testing. So um, that's a good question. Um, the problem is not the lack of data, the problem is the lack of users. So if you have very few users, it's very hard to see significance, right? Uh, it's very unlikely to, so I would not do A-B testing if I have less than 50,000 users. And I'm pragmatic. Uh, what I would be very good at though is tracking and logging, right? So I, I will know 
what are my users doing, what are they clicking, what is their path in the app, right? So I would not underinvest in tracking because my app is new, but I would not go out there and test because I will not get significance from a test, right? Now, when I come to having a user size that I believe uh, I can get significance for, uh, it's very important to choose the first couple of A-B tests and do something that's meaningful in order to get interesting results. So imagine now we have uh, 100,000 users and we change the color of a button which is the example most people bring. They are not going to get significance for it. They will run an A-B test. Results will be insignificant. The product manager or the founder is going to tell the data scientist, you know, you don't know what you're doing. We wasted our time. Yeah. So when they have a very big and important change, that's the best time to roll out your first A-B test. And the main thing you have to do is what if this change goes wrong? What do we do then? Right? So let's roll it out to 10% of our users, 20% of our users. Let's see how they respond, if they like it, if the app is still working, if they're still buying stuff or trading or whatnot. And then if something goes wrong, let's be ready to pull back quickly. So this feature flag, right, is already an A-B test. I would then go take the data from the feature flag from this period that we only expose the feature to 20% of the users, let's say, for that week, and run uh, an analysis. And this is a secret A-B test that people did without knowing, right? And if the feature is big enough, then we'll see a lot of results. We'll see some major results on our users have more sessions per day, as we expected. And also some uh, unexpected results. Now people go to settings much more, try to switch it off, right? And that's, I think, how you integrate data into the uh, organization's mindset, the decision-making, and make people excited about the idea of the A-B test. You never run the A-B test with the A-B test as the end goal. But as you do a stage rollout where you affect your users at stages, little by little make sure you don't degrade their experience, you also get other useful measurements, and this is the idea behind the A-B test, right? Uh, making you better one change at a time. So let's say I'm a, I'm a bootstrap founder. I built like my tiny little uh, SaaS business here, which is B2B. So I have maybe like a thousand clients. Um, you would not recommend me a B testing, obviously. Uh, if, oh, if those... oh, can... Yes, yeah. no. I can tell you uh, when I was at Airbnb, I had uh, 1.7 million hosts. Uh, the hosts are very different, right? Some are professional hosts. They have thousands of accommodations. Uh, some are mom and pups that put like their uh, spare bedroom of their kid every weekend on uh, the platform. It was very hard to get significance on any test on the uh, host side with 1.7 million hosts, right? So a lot of things play a role, including uh, how different uh, your population people are, right? Uh, so... I would say in a SaaS business, it's very hard to A-B test and I wouldn't invest in it anytime soon. And analytics? Let's say I just started. I, I have no clue. I have, have no cohorts. I have like zero information, but I have this web-based app. Uh, I have like stable customer IDs. Um, so I could build cohorts. Like what would you start with? Yeah, so uh, the first thing you need to make sure you're able to reproduce your customer journey. Right? Uh, so if you can create these little pathways of uh, the user came to the app, they click here, they did that, they did X, Y, Z, you're in a very good shape. If at any point of time you lose track of users, so you don't know how from point A they end up in point B, you need to increase your logging detail. 
right? So that's a simple rule of thumb. Now, when you look at analytics, there is two cohorts. One cohort is the people who are like using the app. And one cohort is the new users. And every time you make a change, you need to look at the effects of this change on how the existing users use the app and how the new users use the app. Now, what the best and most successful companies do is over-index on how the new users behave. Right? Uh, for example, in our case, if we make a difference and the existing people who trade in Trade Republic trade 1% less, but people who just signed up trade 10% more, the total trading volume will go down. Right? Because there's many more existing users than new users. But maybe this new interface is more intuitive. That's why people who don't know how to trade can now finally trade. Right? And it will take some time for the existing users to get uh, accustomed to it. Of course, when they first see the interface, they now trade less. The right uh, decision for the long term is to make it easier for new users. Right? Uh, there is 8 billion people in the world and not even 1 billion on Trade Republic. So many more new <laughs> users out there than already on the platform. So make it better for people out there. And I think this decision is very difficult. And uh, obviously, the founders, the early employees are early users who are used to the previous user experience, right? Uh, but every time you see a win for the new users, for the just acquired, for people who are new in the app, it's a big win. And you should not underestimate the value it brings into increasing your platform, word of mouth, and making it viral. Okay. Over-index new users. Um, and um, understood. Like... Do you have like two recommendations like for 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 like smaller companies for smaller setups? Um, I know it's bad to talk oh. about. Two, I mean, you're talking about logging, but I mean, how, right? <laughs> do you would you would you do raw logging or what would you do? Yes. So um, in the places I've been before, uh, Trade Republic would do it in house, like a place like Netflix, Airbnb, Uber. We do not use tools, right? Yeah. Um, I think right now for logging, the two major solutions are in particular segment, right? Uh, they allow real-time tracking. They integrate with a lot of visualization tools. Uh, so you can do a lot of product analytics out of the box, right? Uh, so I would recommend people to look at the, these two. Um, Snowplow is an open source solution, right? That comes with much less uh, bells and whistles and, uh, of course, solutions that are, uh, you pay for. Right? Um, they can start with anything they prefer and, uh, See where the world takes them. Okay, yeah, yeah. I mean, segment also has like a huge login, right? Um, and, and not so much, not so much analytics itself, but more event tracking, right? And you then send the events somewhere else. Um, do you have like a? Would you use like IPython notebooks uh, from the start, or what, what, do you have like a good interface where which is easy to use as well? Okay, so when it came to Telepapu, uh, we were using a thing that was called Metabase. Uh, which was um, open source and free and uh, very few features, but pretty simple. And business users could actually navigate your data sets, right? And uh, do some simple visualizations. Uh, we do use Looker now, but in between this part by Snowflake. Right? Um, so data is generally an expensive business. It's hard to get it done cheaply, right? Uh, but a lot of these tools, they save you headcount. Right. For example, how do we do event logging in uh, Airbnb? We had our own uh, uh, SDK and we use Thrift to track the changes in our logging and then uh, Kafka in the backend, right? Uh, but if you want to build this, you need, you need 10, 12 people. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Right? So if you 
Each segment is expensive, hire 12 people and build it. It's not impossible. And of course, at the size, it's much better to build yourself, right? But even in our size today, with 220 people in our tech organization, uh, we still use a lot of tools like this, right? Uh, we don't think it's worth spending 10 or 5% of our workforce reproducing a tool we can buy for like a 50K a year. Yeah, I mean, that's also how I think segments pricing model works, right? Um, they <laughs> they uh, take into account well, that you actually save people. We don't use segment, by the way. I think you can't, right? Uh, because it's like, as a bank. Uh, maybe yeah, maybe I'm not in EU, right? Yeah, but uh, I'm just uh, bringing it up as the biggest uh, client, customer out there, right? So, um... so um you, you you worked for Netflix in, in, in the position before, right? Uh, and Netflix has like a, a relatively interesting approach on working culture and and and, and, and um, responsibility. Is is that where you picked up the you build it, you own it thing, or was that was it before? Yeah, so uh, you build it, you own it, exists all over Silicon Valley. Uh, also, it is very hard translated to Europe. You can talk about it if you want. Um, but freedom and responsibility, which is what you are referring to, comes from Netflix. And I push for as much freedom as possible as long as people get the responsibility. Right? Uh, for example, I'm trying to push for unlimited vacations. Uh, hard to do in Europe, of course. But in Netflix, there is no limit. You can take as much holiday as you want. Right? As long as you get the job done. Uh, yeah. So... Freedom and responsibility is one of the main mantras there. And if you if you mess it up, you're fired, which is also not so easy in Europe. <laughs> yes, right. So uh, at Netflix, I would say the severance was always very generous. You get four months and the fifth month during COVID, right? Um, and this was made to make it easier for people to make the decision to let someone go. So don't worry if they will land on their feet, right? Uh, but yes, Netflix had a famous culture for letting people go. I would say most people get fired between the first and the second year. And then if you make this bomb, then you can stay forever. Netflix type of uh, person. How long did you stay there? <laughs> uh, almost three years. Okay, okay. So you made it. <laughs> so I went over this bomb. I went over this bomb and it was very difficult, actually. Uh, so what happens, if you pass the interview process, you obviously have the skills to be successful, right? Uh, but once you've been there for a while, nine to 12 months, people give you feedback and it had a culture of both, um, direct, but also harsh feedback, right? Um, and then you receive this feedback from multiple sources and then you have to accept it as a gift. <laughs> you have to accept it. And, uh, it doesn't matter if you agree with it or not, you still have to improve and implement it, right? I think this is the difficult part. A lot of people are already great and they don't feel they need to improve. But in the Netflix culture, you have to continuously improve yourself. Right? And that's where most people fail. They come there, they're good at the job, and they think that's good enough. Well, no, that's not good enough. You have to be better. Right? And that's why I'm saying between the first and the second year, it's very likely for people to be go. Would you say in engineering, there is ever a good enough? No. Right? It's not a place to be complacent. Yeah. And that's why I think this is an amazing engineering culture, although it's a media company, right? It's it's a studio now, uh, but this culture helps its engineering a lot. 
and not as much its content, right? So, so um, could you name three things that really boosted your productivity or your day-to-day -day, um, in, in the last years? Like three things you can give us as straight recommendations? Yes. Um, so it depends a lot on your role and your seniority. CTO. <laughs> CTO of 50 okay. people. <laughs> so the first thing you have to do is I think every quarter, uh, what I do, I create a, a spreadsheet with two weeks of my calendar. Uh, and then I move the meetings around, right? So I decide who I spend time with by weekly, who I spend time with weekly, what time of the day this should be. And then I go and put it in my calendar and people have to figure it out after this, right? So your calendar gets super fragmented. Things appear, disappear, change. You have to do this um, defragmentation on a quarterly basis, right? And uh, this is not something you can outsource. You cannot get your PA to do it. You have to do it yourself. So every three months, look at your calendar, fix it. It's like moving houses also. If there's one thing that you're not sure if you need, you don't need it. Keep what you need. That would be my first advice. The second advice I think is very useful for CTOs I've met in startups here in Berlin. Um, you have to spend more time with your overperformers and less time with your underperformers. So what happens is people have this natural tendency. If I have four people in my team, two are doing great, one is doing poorly, one is doing so-so, right? They spend more time with the person doing poorly, trying to help them to improve. Um, the uncomfortable truth is, this is the time most likely wasted. Right? Uh, if you think you somehow don't allow, don't set up people for success, by all means, spend some time, set them up for success. But they have to learn to succeed themselves. You cannot make it a success for them. Right? So second advice is spend more time with your overperformers, less time with your underperformers. Move this balance a little bit. Uh, the third advice I would give to people uh, is transparency. Uh, I think the last six months have been very hard for the ecosystem. There have been a lot of layoffs. Uh, we had one as well. And if you watch conversations on LinkedIn, right, employee reactions and sugar coatings, uh, People did not build up well towards this event, right? Uh, they did not make clear that this is a business. That's a business, the bottom line matters. And the best thing is to add value to the business, right? Um, people did not uh, create the expectations that uh, we keep our most effective people, right? And then when reality hits you, and reality will hit you one way or the other, the train, uh, people were surprised, people were shocked, and people were not shocked by the layoff, they were shocked that their expectations were not met. And this means the expectations were not real. Did they not know, did they not know that the revenues were uh, not going well? Did they not know that the company was burning money at an unprecedented pace, right? More transparency could help a lot about we're a business, we're here to win, we want effective people, uh, we need to have revenue, if we're burning money, that's not okay, and so on and so forth, right? So this would be the three pieces of advice I would give. Recalibrate your calendar every quarter, defragment it, I call it. More time with our performances, with underperformers, 
and transparency, transparency, transparency can go a long way. Yeah, especially the first one I had to think about a lot in the in the recent months. Um, I, I use a tool for a while called Reclaim AI, which is kind of helpful to uh, organize your one-on-ones and look into each other's calendar um, automatically uh, and 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 defragment on a certain level, uh, like as long as it knows how how often you want to meet uh, meet meet your directs and so on. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, like just deciding on how much time can I spend with whom is very important um, and to, to regularly do that again, right? Um, that's 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 good. Cool. Um, and then I still have a little surprise for you. So um, I have to tell you that I, 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 I hacked your app. So I downloaded the APK from uh, the Android App Store and um, I, I actually um, uh, unpinned the certificate. So you use certificate pinning for, for security reasons. Um, And uh, I, I saw your API and uh, saw um, that you have like an undocumented feature in the API. Um, and it's, a, it's an Easter egg. It's called uh, Time Machine. Um, and it's actually a way to secretly uh, make money for your company. Uh, so you can travel back in time uh, and you uh, can can obviously like in the stock market, if you can travel back in time, you can, can imagine the effect. And We, we don't use it for the stock market now, but we use it to actually travel back in time. And we travel back in time uh, to the point when you started at Source Amsterdam as an algorithmic trader in 2009. And we can now watch yourself, like your younger self for a while, um, uh, while you, you were sitting in front of the, the computer, like figuring out your first, um, your first trades. Um, and you now have the chance to whisper something um, into young Tanasi's ears. What what would it be? Good question. Um, I think I would just say these two shall pass. You know this expression? Um, like when something is great, don't get too excited. These two shall pass. When something is horrible, Don't let it uh, put you down. These two shall pass. Because these two shall pass. Whatever comes ahead of you, these two shall pass, right? Um, I'm an emotional person and it goes up and downs and swings. And uh, someone being there telling me, you know what? Start a career, crazy things will happen. Whatever happens, these two shall pass. That's what I would need to hear. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Very helpful. Um, so uh, thanks a lot, Tonesis, for your time. Um, very valuable information. Like I, I, I like the product analytics part um, a lot and the A-B testing. Um, hope to see you soon. Thank you so much. Have a good one. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Alsolist podcast. If you like this episode, share it with friends. I'm sure they'll love it too. Make sure to subscribe so you can hear deep insights into technical leadership and technology trends as they become available. Also, please tell us if there is a topic you would like to hear more about or a technical leader whose brain you would like us to pick. AlphaList is all about helping CTOs getting access to the insights they need to make the best decisions for their company. Please send us suggestions to cto at alphalist.com. Send me a message on LinkedIn or Twitter. After all, the more knowledge we bring to CTOs, the more growth we see in tech. Or, as we say in AlphaList, accumulated knowledge to accelerate growth. See you in the next episode.